The Word of God, the Holy Bible, is a treasure and a gift beyond compare. Every passage of it points to a marvelous truth that God's love for man impelled him to step out of eternity and unite with his creation in order to redeem him from sin. Jesus Christ is both the author and subject of this precious word. Join us at the Superior Word each week as we search out this wonderful gift in search of Christ Jesus. Psalm 138, a psalm of David. I will praise you with my whole heart. Before the gods, I will sing praises to you. I will worship toward your holy temple and praise your name for your loving kindness and your truth. For you have magnified your word above all your name. In the day when I cry out, you answered me and made me bold with strength in my soul. All the kings of the earth shall praise you, O Lord, when they hear the words of your mouth. Yes, they shall sing of the ways of the Lord, for great is the glory of the Lord. Though the Lord is on high, yet he regards the lowly, but the proud he knows from afar. Though I walk in the midst of trouble, you will revive me. You will stretch out your hand against the wrath of my enemies, and your right hand will save me. The Lord will perfect that which concerns me. Your mercy, O Lord, endures forever. Do not forsake the works of your hands. All right, we are going to read today Numbers 21, 10 through 20. It's entitled, Filling Wineskins. Verse 10, Now the children of Israel moved on and camped in Obot, and they journeyed from Obot and camped at Ea Abarim in the wilderness, which is east of Moab, toward the sunrise. From there they moved and camped in the valley of Zered. From there they moved and camped on the other side of the Arnon, which is in the wilderness that extends from the border of the Amorites. For the Arnon is the border of Moab between Moab and the Amorites. Therefore, it said in the book of the wars of the Lord, Waheb in Sufa, the brooks of the Arnon and the slope of the brooks that reaches to the dwelling of Ar and lies on the border of Moab. From there they went to Be'er, which is the well where the Lord said to Moses, Gather the people together and I will give them water. Then Israel sang this song, Spring up a well, all of you sing to it. The well the leaders sank, dug by the nation's nobles, by the lawgiver with their staves. And from the wilderness they went to Matanah, from Matanah to Nahaliel, from Nahaliel to Bamot, and from Bamot in the valley that is in the country of Moab to the top of Pisgah, which looks down on the wasteland. Everybody got that? Everybody know what's going on there? No. <laughs> Rather interesting set of verses, isn't it? Yeah. I mean, I've read that a million times myself, and I had no idea. And I admit that. I had no idea what this passage was about until I sat down on 25 March and did the study. And I'm so very glad that I did. If anybody here is old enough to remember Johnny Horton, or at least his music, he was a singer during the 1950s who did some great tunes, a couple of which were about wars. One of them was the Battle of New Orleans. It was based on a battle between the Americans and the British about 100 years before his birth. It was such an obscure battle that the people in England didn't even realize that it was real until they researched the contents of the song that they had heard on the radio. His words are in a poetic fashion. And the meaning of them is almost obscure to someone who isn't aware of the lingo that he used. For example, in part of it, he says, We held our fire till we seed their faces well. 
Then we opened up our squirrel guns and really gave them, well, we fired our guns and the British kept a coming. There wasn't nigh as many as there was a while ago. We fired once more and they begin to running on down the Mississippi to the Gulf of Mexico. Unless you're aware of the nuances of the language, the shortness offered at one point for the sensitivity of the people's ears and the locations mentioned, it wouldn't make much sense. He had another great song called Sink the Bismarck. It was a marvelous remembrance of an event that occurred just a few years before and which he put to music. In the verses today, there is a reference to the book of the Wars of the Lord. Because of the name of it and because of the references in it, critical scholars, specifically critical liberal scholars, have argued that this must be a book that had nothing to do with Moses. Some argue that it was actually written by the Ammonites about the conflicts of Baal in which the feats of their heroes like Sihon and others were celebrated in poetry. Others say that it must be a book dating from the time of Jehoshaphat, who came long after the time of King David, and which contains an early history of Israel from the time of the patriarchs to the time of around Joshua. Others make up other ridiculous theories about it, completely disregarding the fact that it is recorded where? That's right, right here in the books of Moses, and that it speaks of things that Israel of the time was intimately familiar with. There is no reason to assume it was written at some point many centuries later, and it is the height of stupidity to credit the book to the Ammonites when it is specifically said to be Sefer Milchamot Yehovah, or the book of the wars of the Lord, or of Yehovah. Liberal scholars are, please forgive the forthrightness, idiots. Our text verse comes from 2 Samuel chapter 1. Then David lamented with this lamentation over Saul and over Jonathan, his son. And he told them to teach the children of Judah the song of the bow. Indeed, it is written in the book of Jasher. The beauty of Israel is slain on your high places. How the mighty have fallen. Tell it not in Gath. Proclaim it not in the streets of Ashkelon. Let the daughters of the Philistines rejoice lest the daughters of the uncircumcised triumph. O mountains of Gilboa, let there be no dew nor rain upon you, nor fields of offerings, for the shield of the mighty is cast away there. The shield of Saul is not anointed with oil. From the blood of the slain, from the fat of the mighty, the bow of Jonathan did not turn back, and the sword of Saul did not return empty. Saul and Jonathan were beloved and pleasant in their lives. And in their death, they were not divided. They were swifter than eagles. They were stronger than lions. O daughters of Israel, weep over Saul, who clothed you in scarlet with luxury, who put ornaments of gold on your apparel. How the mighty have fallen in the midst of the battle. Jonathan was slain in your high places. I am distressed for you, my brother, Jonathan. You have been very pleasant to me. Your love to me was wonderful, surpassing the love of women. How the mighty have fallen and the weapons of war perished. That is certainly the longest text verse that I have ever used, and maybe that will stand as a permanent record. Either way, David wrote the Song of the Bow, and it is recorded in the book of Jasher. That was a book known as far back as the time of Joshua, maybe further, as we will see today. 
It is only a person with a set and perverse agenda who would willingly deny that the book of the wars of the Lord, like the book of Jasher, wasn't recorded exactly as the surrounding text states. The burden of the proof of such ludicrous claims rests solely on those who are making them, and they ain't got it. Be careful who you believe, check all things, hold fast to what is good. This is a wonderfully precious and sacred word that we have been given. It is filled with marvelous wonder and delight. Yes, great things are to be found in his superior word. And so let's turn to that precious word once again. And may God speak to us through his word today. And may his glorious name ever be praised. I have two thoughts for you today. The first is, arise, O well. It's verses 10 through 20. Verse 10, now the children of Israel moved on and camped in Obot. The first three verses of the chapter detailed a battle between Israel and the Canaanites under the king of Arad. The Israelites prevailed, and it says that they called the place of the destruction which occurred Hormah. After that were the six verses concerning the bronze serpent. However, no location was named in that account. The words now say that Israel has moved on and camped in Obot, but it doesn't give a starting point, and only the destination is recorded. We can't tell if the accounts have actually been chronological or not. However, we can tell the record of movement from the detailed list, which will be found a little bit later in Numbers chapter 33. Here's what it says. Now the king of Arad, the Canaanite who dwelt in the south in the land of Canaan, heard of the coming of the children of Israel. So they departed from Mount Hor and camped at Zalmona. They departed from Zalmona and camped at Punon. They departed from Punon and camped at Obot. They departed from Obot and camped at Ie Abarim at the border of Moab. As is seen here, this location, Obot, is the third stop since leaving Mount Hor, where Aaron died and where Aaron was buried. Nothing has been said of Punon yet, and this is the first time that the name Obot is found in Scripture. This tells us that everything seen in these accounts is recorded in a specific order by the Lord in order to show us hints of redemptive history. The name ovot is simply the plural of the word ov, which signifies a skin for holding water or wine. Therefore, it means water skins or wine skins. It could be that the Israelites were able to fill their skins with either water or wine at this location, and thus the name was given because of this. However, ov also signifies a ghost or a necromancer. To understand the connection is going to take just a moment. Ov comes from the same as of or father, as in someone prattling a father's name, like saying dada instead of daddy. And so it is then a mumble. A water skin will resonate from its hollow sound. When one blows into it, out comes the familiar <laughs> that we get when we blow into a bottle. Hence, it leads to the idea of a necromancer or a ghost, it sounds like a ghost, right? Who utters hollow sounds as a ventriloquist might. It is this, for example, which is used to speak of the witch of Endor in 1 Samuel 28, and also of the familiar spirit which Saul asks to be brought forth in that same passage. For such a simple two-letter word, ov, there's a lot to be considered. Obot is located in the land of Edom. Verse 11, and they journeyed from Obot and camped at Eabarim. From a boat, with all of the highly interesting meaning associated with the name of that place, Israel is said to travel next to Ie Abarim. The Hebrew actually reads Ie Ha Abarim or Ie of the Abarim. Ie comes from E, meaning a ruin. 
Avarim comes from avar, meaning to pass through. Thus, Ieha Avarim means something like ruins of the passers or ruins of the crossing over. This location is said to be, verse 11 continues, in the wilderness which is east of Moab toward the sunrise. The location of the wilderness is twice described. The Hebrew does not say east of Moab. It says against the face of Moab. This is then further defined as Mimizrach HaShemesh, or toward the rising of the sun. Thus, by default, it is on the east edge of Moab. The name Moab comes from two words, Mi, which means who, and Av, which means dad. In modern language, we would call him, who's your daddy? The answer comes from the story of how he was born to the union of Lot and one of his daughters. And so the name has a secondary meaning of from father. Verse 12, from there they moved and camped in the valley of Zered. After leaving Ie Abarim, Israel then picked up stakes and camped in Nahal Zered, or the valley of Zered. The word Nahal is not a valley as we would think of one today. It signifies a wadi where water would flow through during the seasons of rain. That word comes from Nahal, meaning to take possession or to inherit. It is well translated as the valley of Zered rather than the brook of Zared, as some translations make it, because one does not camp in a brook. Rather, they camp in the valley, whether water was running at that time or not. However, it is likely that it was a running river, as Deuteronomy chapter 2 implies. Zared comes from an unused root, meaning to be exuberant in growth of foliage. According to Deuteronomy 2, this location represents a significant milestone in the travels of Israel, a marvelous milestone, as will be explained in the next verse. Verse 13, from there they moved and camped on the other side of the Arnon. Always be careful when you read Bibles not to accept a translation until you've checked it out. Israel is said to have left the Valley of Zared, and their next travel took them to the side of the Arnon. The translation, which I just read, which says the other side of the Arnon is not correct. The Hebrew says me'ever. It simply means on the side, and it can speak of either side. However, you got to take the Bible in its whole context. Deuteronomy 2.24 and Judges 11 verse 18 both indicate that they had not crossed over the Arnon into Moab. It should simply say that they camped on the side of the Arnon. Always be careful when you read the Bible not to take it at face value. Translators are translators. They are not scholars. Some translators are scholars. Some scholars are great scholars and they never translate. You need to have a unity of the two. The name Arnon comes from Ranan, a word which has only been seen once at the dedication of the sanctuary. When the Lord consumed the offering on the brazen altar, the people Ranan or shouted and fell on their faces. It signifies to give a jubilant, ringing cry and thus rejoicing. Therefore, this is the roaring stream. It is that river, verse 13 continues, which is in the wilderness that extends from the border of the Amorites. The encampment by the Arnon is next described as being in the wilderness, which extends from the border of the Amorites. The name Ha-Emori, or the Amorite, comes from Amar, meaning to utter or to say. Therefore, the name signifies being spoken of, and thus renowned. Verse 13 continues, for the Arnon is the border of Moab between Moab and the Amorites. The Arnon, this river, is the dividing line between the two territories, one belonging to Moab, the other to the Amorites. 
The river itself comes out of the mountains of Moab, crosses between these two nations, and finally falls into the Dead Sea. In crossing this valley where the river is, a milestone which has been anticipated for 38 years has been reached. In Deuteronomy chapter 2, it says this, Now rise and cross over the valley of Zered. So we crossed over the valley of Zered. And the time we took to come from Kadesh Barnea until we crossed over the valley of the Zered was 38 years until all the generation of the men of war was consumed from the midst of the camp, just as the Lord had sworn to them. For indeed the hand of the Lord was against them to destroy them from the midst of the camp until they were consumed. Does anybody remember what all of this is picturing from Numbers 13 on? The punishment of Israel for the past 2,000 years. Keep that in mind as we're reading because maybe you'll form a picture before I give you the answer. Upon entering this area, the final trek before leading into Canaan is seen. It will be in short time that Moses is going to speak out the words of Deuteronomy. And from there, he's going to climb to the top of Mount Nebo. He's going to see the land of promise from a distance, and he's going to die. As Deuteronomy 1 verse 2 says, it is an 11-day journey from Horeb, meaning Mount Sinai, to Kadesh Barnea. That is where Israel was told back in Numbers 13 and 14 to enter into Canaan and to subdue it. 11 days from Sinai to where they were told to enter into the land of promise. But the people rebelled. Because of this failure on their part, they were told to depart that area and to wander until all of that wicked generation was dead. From there, Deuteronomy 2 that I just read said that they wandered for 38 years until all of that generation was dead and gone. What is implied is that the very last person under sentence is Moses himself. In 38 years and in just a few recorded stops, hundreds of thousands of people, maybe more, met their end and were buried in the wilderness. Now, I heard a tradition, and I don't like to put this in sermons, but I'll say it anyway because it's a tradition. It's not in the Bible. But it is said that every night, the Israelites, when they camped, wherever they were or whenever they stayed in a place for a long time, they slept in a trench that they had dug. Because when they died, nobody would have to do the work of burying them because they only stopped in a few stops. And in all of those stops, hundreds of thousands of people had met their end. And so instead of having to bury those bodies, and all of these stops of people were just all ready to be buried. Now, that's tradition. That's not in the Bible. But I just thought I'd tell you that it, it answers something very you know, peculiar because, I mean, you're not allowed to touch a dead body. You've got to go through the sprinkling, all of these things that they talked about. And so it would take care of several problems all at once by doing that. Not in the Bible, just tradition. But with the crossing of the Arnon, all but Moses were gone. Only Joshua and Caleb would be left of that generation after that. Instead of 11 days and then beginning a victorious entry into Canaan, there were 38 years of death, defeat, heartache, and woe. Now think of the picture before I go on. If Israel had accepted their Messiah, they would have entered into the millennium. They would have reigned with Christ for a thousand years. But because they didn't, they went through 2,000 years of death, defeat, heartache, and woe. The time is now complete, and the new generation is set to begin anew without their faithless fathers. With this crossing, a particular record is made and which is recorded for Israel. Verse 14, there it is said in the book of the wars of the Lord, 
There is great speculation as to what the book of the wars of the Lord is. What seems likely, but without being overly dogmatic, because dogs snarl and they fight, but they do not conduct war, is that this would be a collection of songs or psalms which celebrated the great acts of the powerful deliverances of the Lord's people, which they experienced through his personal action. It may or may not even be what is later called the book of Jasher, or the upright one, which is seen in Joshua 10, verse 13, and again in 2 Samuel 1, 18, which was a part of our text verse today. From the coming words, it is likely that it is such a book of songs, and it probably even included the Song of Moses from Exodus chapter 15. It's difficult to be adamant, but it seems certain because of the words which begin with this. Verse 14 continues, Waheb in Sufa. The Hebrew reads, Vaheb be Sufa. Of the words here and through verse 15, Adam Clark, who I respect immensely, and who's a great Hebrew scholar, he was back hundreds of years ago, but he says the words are impenetrably obscure. That means there's no way to look into them and find out what they mean. And it is true that there are as many opinions on what is said here as there are people who have sat down to evaluate them. But today, you will get the correct evaluation. The Hebrew is complicated, but what I want you to do is to remember Johnny Horton's song. This is to be expected. He wrote a song in kind of a form that people around him would know, but other people wouldn't. They'd have to research and they'd have to study and think about it. And until you do that, you're not going to be able to penetrate what is so obscure. However, the King James Version, which basically plagiarized the Geneva Bible, and which is itself following from the Latin Vulgate, gives a general thought in these translations which appears to make the most sense. And so the word vehev would be translated as and he did. The next word besufa would then be in the Red Sea. You have be, which is the article means in, and then sufa is the Red Sea. Okay, in Hebrew, the Red Sea is called Yam Suf. We talked about that last week during the sermon, or the Sea of the Ending, meaning the end of the land in reference to Israel. And so the words here would say, and he did in the Red Sea. Next it says, verse 14 continues, the brooks of the Arnon. Ve'et ha-nechalim Arnon. And unto the brooks of the Arnon. In other words, what we are seeing in these two verses is an all-encompassing thought which goes from the majestic display of power in bringing Israel through the Red Sea even unto delivering them finally at the brooks of the Arnon as they were ready to begin their battles for the conquest of Canaan. Thus, it would make sense that the Song of Moses, which highlighted the magnificent power of the Lord, would be included in this book. One would imagine it would have also included a song concerning the battle against Amalek in Exodus 17 and the battle against the king of Arad in this same chapter. Remember the first three verses last week, Numbers 21. The great acts of the Lord would have been put to poetry for future generations to remember what he had done for Israel. It may even be that such a book was started at the time before the Exodus as the plagues came upon Egypt. Here it speaks of the brooks of the Arnon, poetically using the plural for the singular, and maybe speaking of the many streams which led into the greater river. Verse 15, and the slope of the brooks. Ve'ashed ha-nechalim, and the spring of the brooks. The word ashed is found only here in scripture. It indicates an outpouring. So you can see why they 
choose the slope in a translation because it's like an outpouring of rocks. But that's not what's being seen here. It's a spring. So it would be the spring of the brooks. Verse 15 continues, that reaches to the dwelling of Ar. Asher Natale Shevet Ar, which inclines to the dwelling of Ar. Ar is a place in Moab, but it simply means city. A city is a place of habitation where there is constant guarded watch over it. Here, the city is poetically personified by saying the dwelling of Ar. Verse 15 continues and lies on the border of Moab. Venishan ligvu Moab and rests on the border of Moab. It is the river which is the dividing line mentioned in Deuteronomy 2 and which brings to an end the last of the rebellious generation who perished for their disobedient conduct. The reason for this poetic inclusion, then, is that it is as a record of all that happened between these two major events, from the crossing of the Red Sea until right now. Only this portion is included in the scripture because it is to show that the Lord was with Israel all the way through their time in the wilderness. And what he did for them is recorded in those songs, even unto the camp at the Arnon. Despite having been consigned to their fate, which was that the older generation was to die in the wilderness, the Lord had remained with them and had watched over them every step of the way. From this point on, only Joshua, Caleb, and Moses would be left of them, and Moses is also soon to meet his end. But I want you to again think of the symbolism. God never left Israel. People have said the church has replaced Israel. The people have said that God has abandoned them. They're not his people. The symbolism given from here, from the Red Sea to the Arnon, and what it's picturing of Israel means that he was always with them, watching over them, even during their time of punishment. How people cannot get that is because they don't want to read the word, or if they do, they don't want to agree that God is covenant-keeping, even when his people are not. Verse 16, from there they went to Be'er. Umisham Be'era, and from there to Be'er. It's Be'er, it's not beer, okay? Beer would be something you have in a pub. Be'er means well. The name of the place is given based on the well which is there. If the well is given a name, then the location may have the name of the well, such as Beersheba. We see that in Israel today and also in the times of the Bible. Beersheba means well of the seven or well of the oath, okay? This has no name. It's simply Be'er. In this case, it is simply well. But something important is to be recorded here at Be'er. Verse 16, which is the well where the Lord said to Moses, gather the people together and I will give them water. It is rather unusual because nothing to this point has been said of them thirsting. But he obviously knows that they thirst. There are no complaints as with the older generation. With the disobedient generation all gone, having been counted among the rolls of the dead, the Lord now graciously provides them with water. Is anybody seeing it? Are you making the correlation of Israel today? In order to do so, he tells Moses, or he who draws out, to gather the people together. In their gathering, water will be provided. And in his giving, there is a response from the people. Verse 17, then Israel sang this song. Az Yashir Yisrael et Hashira Hazot. At that time sang Israel the song, the this. The word Az is a demonstrative adverb, which basically means at that time. Next, 
the verb shear or to sing has only been seen so far in Exodus 15, the song of Moses, where it was used three times in conjunction with singing out that song of Moses when Israel was delivered through the Red Sea. That seems to be a clue that what I said in the previous verses concerning the translation about the Red Sea is correct. There is a singing forth once again as there was then. The Lord's works are being exalted in a logical, orderly way. Of these words, Adam Clark says this, This is one of the most ancient war songs in the world, but it is not easily understood, which is commonly the case with all very ancient compositions, especially the poetic. This is certainly true, but despite not being easily understood, it is a part of something that the Lord is trying to speak out to us through his recorded word. If we will pay heed, it must be remembered that typology is often how he does this. And so despite the difficulty, he is giving us advanced pictures of things to come, which are selected from true accounts of things which actually and truly occurred. Verse 17 continues, spring up, O well, Ali Be'er, arise well. Verse 17 continues, all of you sing to it, Enulah, all of you respond to it. The word ana means to answer or to respond. Saying sing destroys the intent of the passage because it is a completely different word translated as sing in the previous clause. Young's literal translation takes these two clauses even further. Instead of arise well, all of you respond to it, he says concerning the well, they have answered to it. Though it is hard to determine how he came up with this, and though it is an odd translation of the word which means arise, it is a marvelous translation concerning what is being pictured. Verse 18, the well, the leaders sank. Be'er kafarua sarim, well, sought out by the rulers. With the exception of the CEV, which is the common English version, in this clause or the next, all translations agree that this is an active digging by the leaders. They say they sank, dug, hollowed out, or so on. The CEV says, with their royal scepters, our leaders pointed out where to dig the well. Though the CEV is right that the leaders certainly were not the ones to dig the well, their translation doesn't reflect the Hebrew. Rather, it is a paraphrase attempting to show intent, probably because it is obvious that the rulers would not be the ones to dig a well. We have to think when we're looking at the Bible, okay? <sighs> Taking the translation at face value will lead to disaster, okay? The word is hafar. It means to pry into, and thus by implication, to delve, explore, pry, paw, search out, seek, or even dig. Because this is dealing with a well, the most obvious thought is, oh, they have to dig it. But that is not the job of a leader, and so that is not what is being relayed. Rather, these rulers sought out what the Lord has provided to them. Verse 18 continues, dug by the nation's nobles. Opened by the willing of the people. The word kara means to open. That means by digging, but figuratively it can mean to open one's ears. And it's translated as pierced in Psalm 22 when referring to the crucifixion. The next word, nadiv, signifies something voluntary. And thus anyone who is inclined, willing, magnanimous, or someone like a noble. There is a voluntary 
opening of the well. Verse 18 continues, by the lawgiver with their staves, by decree with their staffs. The word hakak comes from a root meaning to hack. Thus it means to engrave and by implication to enact. From there it can be used to indicate a lawgiver or as it says here, by the lawgiver. It can be an enactment of something. The word mishenah means a staff as for support. One thing is for certain, nobody would use a staff to dig a well. A shovel, yes, their hands maybe, a pack of chihuahuas, possibly, but not with a staff. Of the verse, the scholar Kyle says, here, God gave the people water, not as before by a miraculous supply from a rock, but by commanding wells to be dug. This is evident from the ode with which the congregation commemorated this divine gift of grace. Does anybody see a contradiction in his two sentences? He gave the people the water, not as before by a miraculous supply from a rock, but by commanding wells to be dug. That's his first thought. And then he says, this is evident from the ode with which the congregation commemorated this divine gift of grace. Like Kyle's thoughts, translations for the most part indicate an active digging of the well rather than searching it out and opening it without physical effort. But that is hardly a divine gift of grace if someone has to dig for it. The water coming from the rock is certainly divine grace. Moses spoke to it and it came out. Or he actually hit the rock but he was told to speak to it. The first time he hit it, the second time he was to speak to it and he hit it. It is spoken to and the water comes forth. The same is true here. The entire song, as translated by me, says, Arise well, all of you respond to it. Well sought out by the rulers, opened by the willing of the people, by decree with their staffs. There is a well which is waiting to come forth for the people. The people are being asked to respond to it. It was a well sought out by the rulers. It was opened by the willing of the people, and it was by decree while the people did nothing. They simply placed their staffs where the well was and water came forth. Verse 18 continues, and from the wilderness they went to Matanah. Umidbar Matanah, and wilderness to Matanah. Matanah simply means gift. It is used, for example, in Psalm 68, verse 18. You have ascended on high, you have led captivity captive, you have received matanah, gifts among men, even from the rebellious, that the Lord God might dwell there. Verse 19, from matanah to Nahaliel. Nahaliel means valley of God. Verse 19 continues, from Nahaliel to Bamot. Bamot means high places or great high place. Verse 20, and from Bamot in the valley that is in the country of Moab. Here Bamot or great high place is said to be in the Gai or valley in the country of Moab or from father. From there our journey today ends with, verse 20 finishes, to the top of Pisgah which looks down on the wasteland. Rosh HaPisgah or the top of Pisgah. Pisgah comes from Pasag, meaning to pass through, and thus it is a cleft. It is always prefixed by the definite article, and thus it is the cleft. Pisgah is said to look down on Ha Yeshimon, or the wasteland. Some translations say Jeshimon, but with the definite article, it simply means the wasteland. That comes from a word meaning to be desolate. It is this place where Israel will wait for word to travel on through the land of the Amorites. 
Stay tuned for the exciting details in the next sermon. Arise, O well, bring forth the water of life. We have long been in a barren and ruined land, but now has ended our time of punishment and strife. Now we know the truth. Now we understand. Our fathers didn't believe and they were sent away. They were exiled to a barren and ruined land. But here we are, new wineskins, ready to obey. Now we know the truth. Now we understand. We have come to trust in you alone, O Lord. No more shall we pass through the barren and ruined land. We know the truth of Messiah, the incarnate word. Now we know the truth. Now we understand. Is everybody thinking about what Sergio reported today, Voitenko News Services? That's been going through my mind this entire time. Our second thought today is pictures of Christ. The account begins with the children of Israel moving on and coming to Obo. As we saw, that means skins. In this case, we can be certain it is wineskins. This will become evident, but the picture is seen in Jesus' words of Luke chapter 5. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins, or else the new wine will burst the wineskins and be spilled, and the wineskins will be ruined. But new wine must be put into new wineskins, and both are preserved. And no one, having drunk the old wine, immediately desires new, for he says the old is better. Jesus was actually speaking of the law and grace. If one tries to put the grace that the Lord provides into the law, the skins couldn't handle it. They were incompatible and both are ruined in the attempt. That this is the picture is certain because the old generation, the law, is now dead. They had rejected the grace of Christ. Remember, Aaron just died a while ago, folks. They had rejected the grace of Christ, which was pictured in entering the land of promise, and they went into punishment. Likewise, Israel rejected Christ, crucified him, and went into punishment. They went until a set point in time, but now they are being brought back to God. Voitenko News Services, down in Jerusalem, just a day ago. They aren't there yet, but this is what is pictured. The wineskins are being prepared. From there, they went through the ruins of the passers, or Eabarim. In order to get to glory, one must pass through the ruins of his past life. Nobody starts in glory. And this is what is being seen here with their next stop. The wineskin of grace means passing through that which is ruined. This was said to be east of Moab, toward the sunrise. Man in search of God must head west. That is where Moab, or from father, is. And that is the trek we make, pictured by the casting of Adam east of Eden. Remember that? Adam was cast east of Eden. And the most holy place in the sanctuary, where is it? It's in the west. And what was facing the east? Cherubim, picturing the, the cherub guarding Eden. Man must travel west. After this, they went to Nahal Zered, or the Valley of Zered. Nahal comes from a word signifying to inherit or take possession. The valley is named Zared because of the abundant foliage implying well-watered and vibrant. In this, the significant milestone of all of the disobedient generation being gone, which is recorded in Deuteronomy, was seen. This is the last stop where any but Moses will be. The time of punishment is over, which seems to be reflected in the idea of taking possession of the abundant foliage. Abundant life is once again ready to be possessed. The next stop is on the side of the Arnon. As seen, that comes from Ranan, meaning jubilant or rejoicing. It is in the wilderness and lies between Moab, or from father, and the Amorites, or renown. 
The name renowned gives a sense of foreboding. We'll see that next week. In Numbers 13, a fear of these people, along with the others in Canaan, led to their downfall and punishment. But this is a new generation, and such will not be the case. They will live by faith and will be given life through faith. At this time came the first poetic offset, and he did in the Red Sea and unto the brooks of the Arnon and the spring of the brooks, which inclines to the dwelling of Ar and rests on the border of Moab. The book of the wars of the Lord is referred to here to tell the people that despite their time of punishment, he had been with them, leading them to this point. They are on the border of Moab, or from father, and no matter what they face, they have been cared for and would be cared for. The poetic offset looks forward to the taking possession of the outpouring, which leads to the city and which rests on the border of Moab, or from father. In other words, it is a picture of receiving the Spirit and entering into the promised heavenly city, which is where God interacts with man. This is then seen with their arrival at the air, or well. It is here that the Lord promises to give them water. Their time of punishment is ended, and the people will drink water from the well. It is an obvious picture. Israel will someday, not too far off from our present time, receive Christ, and they will receive the Spirit which issues from Christ. The words of the poetic offset, as I translated them, said, Arise well, all of you respond to it, well sought out by the rulers, opened by the willing of the people, by decree with their staffs. In speaking of the well sought out by the rulers, that is referred to by Jesus in Matthew 23 with these words, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the one who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her, how often I wanted to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you were not willing. See, your house is left to you desolate, for I say to you, you shall see me no more till you say, Baruch haba Hashem Adonai, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. It is only when Jerusalem, meaning the leadership of Israel, seeking out the Lord, calling on him, that he will return to them. When they do, he will. Zechariah 12 shows us the fulfillment of the picture we're looking at right here in Numbers 21. And I will pour on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and supplication. Then they will look on me whom they pierced. Yes, they will mourn for him as one mourns for his only son and grieve for him as one grieves for a firstborn. That is further explained in Zechariah 13, verse 1. In that day, a fountain, think of the well here, a fountain shall be opened for the house of David and for the inhabitants of Jerusalem for sin and for uncleanness. This explains why the translation does not say dug. It is the grace of Jesus Christ poured out on his long disobedient people, but who have ended their time of punishment, which is pictured here. After this, it says they went to matanah or gift. What does the giving of the spirit to a person imply? It implies salvation. From the well, they are given the gift. But God, who is rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved and raised us up together and made us sit 
together in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, that in the ages to come he might show the exceeding riches of his grace in his kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the matana. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. Everybody seeing the progression? It follows exactly with what is happening in human history right before our eyes. So much for hyper-dispensationalism that says there's two Gospels, one for the Jews and one for the Gentile. They're just late in catching up. And so much for replacement theology, which completely ignores these verses to show us that God has not abandoned Israel. You can wipe away a lot of bad doctrine simply by reading the books of Moses and understanding what he's trying to tell us. The people had gone from attempting to enter salvation through their own efforts. Remember that? Oh, we're going to go up. He says, don't go. Don't go. You've already betrayed the Lord. Don't go. That was back in Numbers 14. They've gone from that to coming to the Lord through faith here in Numbers 21. The entire time in the wilderness has been one long procession of thought detailing Israel's history since the coming of Jesus Christ. From Atana or gift, they went to Nahaliel or Valley of God as this is a picture of Israel coming to faith at the end of the tribulation period, after their time of punishment, I would go so far as to say that this is speaking of the valley where Christ will judge the people. In Psalm 110, a messianic psalm, it speaks of exactly this, including the word nahal or valley, which is the source of the name Nahaliel. Here's what it says. The Lord is at your right hand. He shall execute kings in the day of his wrath. He shall judge among the nations. He shall fill the places with dead bodies. He shall execute the heads of many countries. He shall drink of the brook, Nahaliel, by the wayside. Therefore, he shall lift up the head. From Nahaliel, the people then went to Bamot, which means high places or great high place. That would be Jerusalem, which Micah 1 verse 5 calls the high places of Judah. It is a picture then of where the Lord will reign during the millennium. Bamot is said to have been in the Gai, or valley, in Moab. Isaiah 22.1 calls Jerusalem, Gay or valley, Chizion, the valley of vision. Thus, this is a reference to Jerusalem, being the valley which is, as Moab is translated, from Father. It is a reference to what will be during the millennium, the great high place in the valley where the Father's blessings will flow. That is beautifully seen in the picture of the millennium in Ezekiel 47, where water flows from under the threshold of the temple all the way down to where the Dead Sea is now, and the Dead Sea becomes alive. Finally, the narrative ends at the top of Pisgah, or to pass through, which looks down on the wasteland. This must be a reference to what is stated about the millennium by Isaiah in the very last verse of his book. Here's what he says, and they shall go forth and look upon the corpses of the man who have transgressed against me, for their worm does not die, and their fire is not quenched. They shall be an abhorrence to all flesh. The people will have passed through the cleft to life, but they will look back on the corpses of the fallen, pictured by the rebellious generation who died in the wilderness. The entire passage today is simply a foreshadowing of what Israel missed And therefore, they suffered exile and death for over the past 2,000 years, but which will eventually lead to their salvation and their exaltation when Christ returns for and to them. The pattern has been seen all the way since Numbers chapter 13. 
Each passage has moved along that same theme, reflecting the state of Israel since their rejection of Christ. And now, what will come upon them someday in the future has been methodically detailed in today's verses. You're seeing a snapshot of what is coming very soon in human history. As this is so, and as it is certain, what that means beyond Israel the people is that the message of Christ is just as true for them in the days ahead as it is for all people at this time. If what God says about the work of Christ and the giving of the Spirit is true for Israel, it is true for the world. Israel missed the significance of the coming of Messiah, and so he went to the nations during their time of punishment. However, he will be coming back to them, and they will receive him. Before that day, he will call the church home, and the time of woe which Israel is faced will extend to a time of woe levied upon the whole world. Only after that final period of purification will Israel call out to God, and until they do, the woes will only increase. To be spared from that, the Lord offers grace. It is grace in the giving of His Son, and it is free. The people in today's passage did nothing to receive the gift. The Lord led them to the well, and by decree, the people simply opened it by resting their staffs upon it. A staff in the Bible is a symbol of the authority of the one who possesses it and of where one places his trust. In the case of Israel, the picture is that they took their authority and placed it at the well, trusting in it to provide, not in their own self. The well is Christ. The water is the Spirit. They trusted Christ, and the Spirit came forth. Does everybody see the picture? Has anybody missed what we've seen today? This is what God asks of us. He asks us to come in faith, putting aside self. Don't trust in yourself. Don't trust in your deeds of merit. Are you ready to come to Christ and submit yourself to his capable hands? The Lord is calling, and I pray that you will make the right choice. It is by grace that you are saved, by faith through grace. It is the gift of God and not of works, lest any man should boast. The Bible is a very, very, very complicated book. People have been reading these verses now for thousands of years, thousands of years, and they've made no sense at all. But it's a very simple book. God loves the people of the world. God chose Israel. God will not reject Israel even when he punishes them. God places them back in the land. They finally put their trust in him, and out comes the water. Everybody see it? The same is true with us. We must trust in what God has done through Jesus Christ. There are not two paths to heaven. There are not three or four or ten or a hundred. There is one path to heaven, one path to being restored to God. I know people want to argue this to death in today's world, but that is what the Bible teaches because there's only one Son of God that came to pay the sin debt for us. And his death and his message is exclusive. That means that you must choose it. It is not everybody is saved through the blood of Jesus Christ. It is everybody is saved through the blood of Jesus Christ potentially. And until you call on Christ, it will not happen. But when you do, it becomes actual and you are now saved. Please call on Christ. I wouldn't sit here. I'm going to tell you something. This is the honest truth. I would not sit here in this pulpit and preach if I didn't believe what I was saying. Now, I read an article about um, one of the faith healer preachers that has 15 jumbo jets today and mail online, right? And I wonder about the guy. 
He's worth, like, I think they said $725 million, three-quarters of a billion dollars, and yet he still asked for money. What does he need it for, right? But I wouldn't be sitting here if I didn't believe this message. And I will tell you something. Mondays are brutal. And the four Mondays of the Balaam sermons, which are coming up not next week, but the week after that, have been excruciating. Because I've got all the information for you, and I have not found the picture. I don't know what God is trying to tell us with those Balaam sermons. And unless he tells me, you're going to get a great sermon, you're going to get all kinds of information, but I am not going to make something up to tickle your ears. I believe this because I translated it and because I read the commentaries and I came to my own conclusions. And if I could not have done it with this passage, you would have gotten a great sermon with all of the information and none of the details filled in. I don't need to go through Mondays. It's not something I have to do. It's long. George now knows. He gets up and I don't say hello, George, when he walked by. I don't want to talk to people on Monday. I don't want people to call me on Monday. I don't want anything because it is very complicated. It is very difficult. My head hurts. And if I get a phone call, I forget half of what I'm trying to put together in my brain. Okay? But when I'm done, I say, you know what? Thank you, Lord. I thank him that I'm done with that sermon. I can now present it to somebody. But I don't need to go through that. I could go online. I could pull off a life application sermon from this passage because there are probably 10,000 of them or pay $9.99 and get one that's got all of the information in it. And then I could present it to you and I could rake in the millions. It's not worth it. To me, what is worth it is understanding what God is telling us and I'm so excited when I get sermons like this because it reaffirms my faith in Jesus Christ that he has not rejected Israel. You watch those videos on the Prophecy Update that I talked about that Sergio sent me for the update. They're out there sticking their finger up at Jesus and making even more profane things about Jesus with their hands, cursing his name. And God still loves them. That gives me the reassurance of the world to know that I'm pursuing the right person in Jesus Christ. So please call on him today. I didn't mean to make that such a long closing statement, but I am passionate about this word and about giving it to you properly. And if I can't, then you'll get some fun sermons about a guy that has a donkey tell him what to do. But I don't know why it's there yet. Our closing verse comes from Isaiah 32. People shall mourn upon their breasts for the pleasant fields for the fruitful vine. On the land of my people will come up thorns and briars. Yes, on all the happy homes in the joyous city. Because the palaces will be forsaken, the bustling city will be deserted. The forts and towers will become lairs forever a joy of wild donkeys, a pasture of flocks, until the Spirit is poured upon us from on high and the wilderness becomes a fruitful field and the fruitful field is counted as a forest. Next week is Numbers 21, 21 through 35. When they are gone, God's people will be overjoyed. It's entitled, Two Foes to be Destroyed. That'll be our 42nd number sermon. The Lord has you exactly where he wants you. He has a good plan and a purpose for you. It may seem at times as if you're lost in the desert wandering aimlessly, but the Lord is there, carefully leading you to the land of promise. And so follow him and trust him, and he'll do marvelous things for you and through you. Okay? Poem, and we're done. Filling wineskins. Now the children of Israel moved on and camped in Obot. And they journeyed from Obot and camped at Eabarim, in the wilderness which is east of Moab, towards the sunrise, from where the sun first does beam. From there they moved and camped in the Valley of Zared. From there they moved and camped on the Arnon's other side, which is in the wilderness that extends from the border of the Amorites, for the Arnon is the border of Moab. 
between Moab and the Amorites, so it does divide. Therefore, it is said in the book of the wars of the Lord, so is recorded this poetic word, which I do not change from the translation. Waheb in Sufa, the brooks of the Arnon, and the slope of the brooks that reaches to the dwelling of Ar and lies on the border of Moab. From there they went to Be'er, which is the well where the Lord said to Moses about the throng, gather the people together and I will give them water. Then Israel sang this song. Spring up, O well, all of you sing to it. The well the leaders sank, dug by the nation's nobles, by the lawgiver with their staves. And from the wilderness they went to Matanah, from Matanah to Nahaliel, from Nahaliel to Bamot, so we understand. And from Bamot in the valley that is in the country of Moab to the top of Pisgah, which looks down on the wasteland. Lord God, we are even now in a wilderness and we are wanting to be led by you. Without you to direct our lives would be a mess. And so be our guide, O God, you who are faithful and true. We long for the water in this barren land. May it flow forth from the rock our souls to satisfy. Give us this refreshing spiritual hand and may we take it into our lives daily. It apply and we shall be content and satisfied in you alone. We will follow you as we sing our songs of praise. Hallelujah to you, to us, your path you have shown. Hallelujah. We shall sing to you for all of our days. Hallelujah and amen. Heavenly Father, Today we lift up the people of Israel and what this passage in the, the book of Numbers means and those who are still fighting against you even though they've been the, given the grace of being returned to their homeland as your word said. That means everything else about your word must be true too and yet they're still fighting against you. They're still bucking against the goads and kicking at them and I would pray that many hearts would be turned by the witness of these Messianic Jews in Israel who are bold enough to do what they're doing in the face of opposition and even death threats. Give them courage and give them wisdom and strength as they go forth in your strength, O God, and not in their own. Then, Lord, we also pray, because it's the day of prayer for our president, for our president. He's a, he's a great president in my eyes. He's done great things, and yes, he's made a lot of mistakes, and he still makes bad choices because he's a human being. But Lord, I do believe he has the best intent in store for this nation and for the nation of Israel, where your people have been regathered to. So Lord, please bless him, give him wise counsel, give him the ability to make proper and good decisions, and please, Lord, stymie the efforts of these wicked people that are coming against him through the courts, through the legal system, through the politicians that are just working evil against him day after day after day. Sweep them aside, Lord. Brush them aside so that he can do what is right and get this nation ready for its entrance into the tribulation period, minus those who are coming to be with you. And may that day be soon. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.